welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Here, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Some recap here from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. He says, in the opening three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has, for all practical purposes, been expounding upon what it means for us to be in Christ. So the book of Ephesians is all about our union with Christ Jesus. Chapters 1 through 3 is about how we have been united to Christ by faith. And what that means. And chapters 4 through 6 then are all about how our union with Christ affects our unity with one another. And so on that foundation, Paul has gone on to describe how the church and the individual believer are called to live in a way that fits with the grace of God and the gospel. The climax of this is the way in which believers not only fit in with Christ, but how they learn to fit in with one another. See, the gospel, the very heart of the Christian faith to be brought into union with Christ has an effect upon believers in the church. That union with Christ as the head also means union with Christ's body, which is the church. And chapters four through six is detailing how that works out. And that means to learn to fit in with one another, willingly submitting to each other. We looked at that last week. But not in the sense that there's no authority structure in the life of the church, but rather in personal relationships in the fellowship. So each member regards others more important than himself or herself. And then Paul takes this application of the gospel a stage further. He says this principle of mutual submission does not negate basic authority structures in first marriage and home life, Second, parents, children, and family life. That's chapter six, as you'll see next week. And three, daily occupation and working life. And so verse 21, Paul says that one of the fruits of the earth, how you know you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, being spirit-filled means that we are a people who submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We defer to one another. But then he goes on to explain three different relationships that have three different, uh, uh, leader, three different people who exercise leadership and three different people who submit and come under the leadership. First, it's wives who submit to the husbands. It's children who submit to the parents. And workers who submit to their bosses. Tonight, we're going to be looking at, last week we looked at what it means for wives to submit to their husbands as under the Lord. Tonight, we're going to look at husbands, love your wives and what that looks like. Let's read the text. Read. We're going to read Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the Lord is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her. That is, consecrate her, set her apart, having cleansed her. So he's setting her, the church, believers apart from the world by and through the cleansing of her by the washing of the water with the word. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish, wearing white on her wedding day, right? In the same way as Christ has loved the church, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes their body and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of the body. The church is Christ's body. Therefore, as Genesis 2.24 says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's why he is to love the wife as his own body, because they are one. What does Paul say, verse 32? This mystery is profound, this mystery of marriage, this one flesh union. And I'm saying that it refers, it points to, it bears witness to ultimately Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So it's not just the theology that our marriage is pointing to, this beautiful truth, but it's also practical. If you were to ask, if you were tasked with, destroy, with destroying a nation without firing a single weapon, how would you do it? A, by causing a coup that consolidates power, taking it from individuals and giving it to the state. B, by causing a massive economic recession through manipulating the currency. C, by unleashing a lab-created disease on the masses. <laughs> or D, create a sexual revolution that dismantles the traditional valley family structures. Which would you choose? To destroy a nation. All these options would be devastating to a country, and I would say there's parts of each of these that are happening. That have happened and no doubt have occurred in countries. But there is one that is far more devastating than the rest. For a coup can be stopped by other world powers or through a revolution. Economic recessions like the Great Depression and the one coming, I believe, can be recovered from. Nations have recovered from economic recessions and depressions before. Nations can be gaslit by our government officials and health experts for two years, but as you can see, our nation is still intact. But something that is far more devastating is the inner decay of a nation through the attack on the family. You have to understand this. This is strategic, it is intentional, and it is happening and has happened. Our nation, you have to understand, nations are governed societies. 
Societies are made up of institutions like the church. Churches are made up of households. Households start with a marriage. And so if you want to destroy a nation, you first attack the marriage, which attacks the household, which attacks churches, which attacks society, and there you have a dismantled nation. This is not a new plan. This is not a new idea, as you will see. And as you know, if you destroy the marriage, you destroy a nation, really. So what do we have? Drag shows where parents are bringing their eight-year-old to see men dressed in drag, dance sexually in front of them, cheering them on. We have no-fault divorce that is rampant. Women can leave men or men can leave a woman for no reason at all. The LGBTQ agenda plus agenda, right, that says that what is morally right is what you feel. Therefore, what we're starting to see is no longer is pedophilia called pedophilia, but minor attraction. It means to be attracted to minors. It's becoming normalized. That's happening right now. Our nation is, it's done. It's, it's in decay. Sorry to break it to you. It, it's, it's destroyed. The tsunami has hit and it, it has already been destroyed. So how do we get here? That's question number one. Second, how can we rebuild this mess? Because I believe like Nehemiah, he sees the, the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down and he weeps and he, he, he intercedes on behalf of God's people. But then he goes, he's like, I got to rebuild. Second, how do we rebuild this? How does this mess get cleaned up? And third, what is my part in this great rebuilding process? Okay. And we're going to look at, answer those three questions by looking at three different marriages. First, Adam and Eve. Second, Christ in the church. And then three, husbands and wives today. So how do we get here? We got to go to Adam and Eve, okay? Go to Genesis chapter one. Go to Genesis chapter one. We're forced to start in Genesis. We, we can't understand marriage without first understanding Genesis chapter one through two. And I know that because Paul grounds his argument of one man, one woman for life in a one flesh commitment in Genesis chapter two by saying, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, which started in Genesis 2, has now been revealed. It's pointed to that it refers to Christ and the church. In fact, Jesus himself, when he's in a dispute with the Pharisees over marriage and divorce, he grounds his stance in hating divorce, which he does, in Genesis 2.24. Jesus cites the same thing. He goes to Genesis chapter two. It all starts there is what Jesus is saying. We have to understand creation and the purpose of marriage first. So Genesis 1, 26 through 31 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. For what purpose? What is their mission? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them and God blessed them, both Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So the mission is this. I want you to take dominion over God's creation. 
I want you to rule. And the way that you rule is by being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it. So be, be fruitful and multiply is, hey, have a lot of kids. Have a lot of kids, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1 gives a summary of the marriage, but then Genesis chapter 2 gives us some more detail. So go to Genesis 2, 15 through 25. So this is now the context. It's just Adam that God created. He hasn't created Eve yet. And here we see the first marriage ceremony in the Bible. The Lord God took the man, created the man, took the man and put him in the temple garden. The garden of Eden was a temple. And he put him in the temple of garden to work it and to keep it. That word work and keep, the only other times those words are used are in referring to priests. What do priests take care of? In, in the Old Testament, what do priests, what's their job? To take care of the temple, right? So Adam is a priest. But he's also a king because he's called to rule. So Adam is a king and he's a priest. And to work means to provide, cultivate the garden. And then to keep it means to protect it, to defend it. So you are to provide, you are to protect. And the Lord commanded the man, verse 16, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gives him a test. He says, you have everything. I love you. Here's all the trees that you could eat from, but here, test your allegiance to me. I do not want you to eat of this tree. The day that you eat it, you will die. And when you obey me, you will earn eternal life. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And every man in here said, amen. 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 Right? God was right. God is right about this. It is not good that man should be alone. So what will he do? I will make a helper fit for him. Notice what God, how God already calls the woman, gives her her design, her mission. A helper fit for him. It is the man that needs help, not the woman, right? That's not, it's kind of a joke, but <laughs> help with what? A helper for what? A helper to fulfill the mission of taking dominion and filling and multiplying because we all know that men cannot give birth to to kids. We don't give life. I'm sorry to break it to you. So Adam needs a helper fit for him. Verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So So Adam is also a prophet. He's naming So he's a prophet, priest, and king. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds and the heavens and to every beast of the field. But Adam, but for Adam, there was no, there was not found a helper fit for him. None of the animals worked out. He tried with man's best friend with a dog, didn't work. The dog wouldn't help in his mission. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. He fashioned into a woman and brought her to the man as if God is leading her down the aisle. That's what it is. That's that's the imagery. 
brings her, just as a father brings her daughter to a man, God brought her to the man. And then the man who's standing at the altar in the garden sings a song. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Starts singing. I don't know what, I don't know how it would go. What is he saying there? He's recognizing that she is of equal substance as he is. They are the same. They are of the same kind. This at last is bone of my bones. There's a union there, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, here we go. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we learn right off the bat a few things about marriage. First, it's God's creation. God is the designer of of marriage, not the state. The state doesn't get to dictate who is married. God dictates who is married. Okay? That's why those who have gone through gay marriages, it's not an actual marriage in God's eyes. The state recognizes it, but God doesn't. Marriage is God's creation. Second, marriage is the one flesh union... Union is an important word with Ephesians, right? Union of two equals, man and woman, a biological male and a biological female. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, of the same substance as one another. United in love for what? For mission. Third, men and women were designed differently with different roles. The man is not the helper The woman is. So the man was given a mission first. The woman is called to be a co-heir with the man, a co-laborer with the man, a helper in the mission. The man is not the filler. He cannot give birth, right? The woman is the filler. She fills, she beautifies, she gives life. She emulates the Holy Spirit in that. The man was made first, and given the mission by God as the covenant head. The man is called to leave, not the woman. The woman is not called to leave their households and cleave to a man. It's a man must leave his father and mother and cleave to a woman who was made to come alongside him as a helper, a co-heir, a co-equal with Christ, but with distinct roles, differences. Fourth, marriage is designed, is the design context of all things one flesh. Everything that has to do with sexuality or sexual acts is only designed for the context of marriage between a male and a female. Everything outside of that is against God's design. And last little point that we got here is marriage is a mysterious picture of God's plan. It's a picture pointing forward to something greater, something more profound It's a picture of God's covenant of redemption, a picture of God's plan of salvation, Christ and the church, Paul says, which is why Satan hates marriage and Satan hates sex. He does. God is the creator of sex. Satan absolutely hates sex. He wants to distort it. He wants to change it because sex is the means by which man and woman together fill the earth with the image of God. Of course he hates it. Satan knew that the way to destroy mankind 
To destroy society and nations and to take out a kingdom is to take out the family by upending, reversing, and sabotaging the first marriage. And that's exactly what he does. Right? That's exactly what happens in Genesis chapter 3. We do not have time to go there. But what happens is that Eve is tempted by Satan. She listens to the voice of Satan rather than the voice of her husband, which then and the voice of God. Adam listens to the voice of, her, of his wife and not to the voice of God. And what comes into the world is sin and destruction and death. Satan attacks the marriage because he knows if I can attack that, I destroy everything that God has made. So he thought. One of the results of this is that now sin corrupts our desires. And one of the things that Genesis 3.16 says about the, what happens to Eve is that she has a desire. It says this, your desire shall be against your husband, but she shall rule over you. So one of the effects of the fall is that women naturally want to rule over their husbands, to domineer them. But as the scriptures say, that the man is still the head. It's literally feminism right there in Genesis chapter 3. Feminism, I'm, I'm serious, I don't necessarily have time to go on this, but is the antithetical ideology to God's design. And it also leads to toxic masculinity. That is man, men who are then passive and view women as objects. So the fruit of sin in men and women lead us to today with widespread acceptance of feminism in the church Feminism praises pornography and women as sex workers uh, because they're liberated from traditional morals on sex, which then turn and fuel toxic masculinity, passivity, weak men that objectify women and more. That's where we're at. (laughs) Now we just see the absolute destruction. Satan has been at work. So that's what happened. <laughs> How do we rebuild this thing? Is there any hope? How does this mess get fixed? Well, praise be to God. He did not leave us in our sin and destruction. But he made another way through uh, the last Adam and the new Eve called Christ and his church. Jesus is the last Adam or the new Adam and Eve is a type of the church. So there's Christ in the church, the second marriage. So turn back to Ephesians chapter five. Why don't we go there? So in the fall, in Christ Jesus, the fall of Adam is reversed. Jesus, like Adam, is a covenantal head of a new humanity, a new people. Jesus obeyed where Adam failed. He bore the judgment that was meant for Adam. How? By becoming a sin offering on the cross and dying to save what the Bible would call his bride, It's an amazing story. And it's not just a story, it's real life. God's bride are all those who will believe on the name of Jesus Christ. And so what does Ephesians 5, 25 say about this amazing love of Christ, this amazing marriage that takes place? It says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word uh, of the water with the word, so that he might present the church no longer in rags, no longer in her sin, no longer in her prostitution, but now in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, she, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is called the bridegroom in the scriptures. He is the one who came to save his people out of their bondage to their sin. How? By destroying the dragon through his resurrection and setting his people free through the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes in, he beautifies, he animates, he fills us with Christ. He changes our hearts and then he starts to beautify the church to make us more like Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That is the good news. How do we fix what has been broken? We don't fix it. Christ has. He is the hope. And God in his grace has made a way for nations, for kingdoms, for individuals, you and I, to be restored. See, the, the boogeyman is not necessarily those activists that are out there, or our nation, or all those people, but it's your own sinful hearts. That is where the destruction of marriage takes place. And it's not someone else's fault, it's, it's our own. But Jesus Christ is our hope. And he transforms us through his love. I love that. Because of Christ and his love for the church. See, love is not a merely a sentimental feeling. It's not. It's sacrificial in nature. And so we see just, I don't know, I got six things here just really quick. What, what demonstrates or what marks Jesus' love? First is the choosing love, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us as sons and daughters through adoption. That Christ's love is based upon nothing that we have done, but based upon his sovereign grace. His love is sacrificial. He, it's giving. It's not a taking love. He gives himself up for her. He dies. <laughs> That's how much he loves. He's willing to die for his enemies. It's a consecrating love. You know what consecrating is. It's, it's setting aside a prized possession from everything else. And that's what it says, that, we might, that he might sanctify her. It's a consecrating love. It's a cleansing love. He washes her through the word, which the Holy Spirit then indwells believers, washing them, cleansing them. It's a glorifying love. He loves to take his bride and, and dress her up with all the fruits of the Spirit to conform her in the image of Christ, to beautify her, to present her with, in splendor, it says, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Christ's love is a uniting love. He unites himself to the church. The church becomes his, the body of Christ. And it's an undying love. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Therefore, in light of this amazing love, the church, us, how do we respond to such love by Christ? Isn't it to honor him, to come under his authority? The church and Christ are not equals. They're not equals in, in authority, but they are part of the body. They are one flesh. So two things can be true at once, that we are in Christ Jesus. Beautiful. We are co-heirs with him. When Christ when the God the Father looks upon the Son, he is so satisfied with the Son, right? He's so satisfied with Jesus. He loves his Son, Jesus. 
Well, if we're one with Christ, what does that mean for us when he looks upon us, believer? He's so satisfied with us because of Christ in us. But at the same time, just as Christ is the head of the church, so husbands are to love like Christ as the head of their wives. And just as the church submits in love and honor to the to Jesus, so the wife is to submit in love and honor to her spouse, her husband, who is emulating Christ to her. This leads to point number three, the third marriage, okay? So we see the means by which God has can clean up this mess. And now what's our part in it? What's our part in it? Husbands and wives, okay? Husbands and their wives. I want to talk to the men here, but this also applies to the women. This application becomes really simple for husbands or future husbands. What are you supposed to do in light of this? Love your, li- uh, love your future wives as Christ loved the church. It's pretty simple. See what Jesus did? He died, gave his life, sacrificed, cleansed, washed, loved, provided for, protected. Do the same thing. Look to Christ, men, and go and die for your spouse. Paul spends three verses on wives and spends nine on men. That's it. Just as you care for your own body by cherishing it, nourishing it, so you are to love your wife who you are one flesh with. Does Jesus beat his own body, the church? Is Jesus harsh with his own body, the church? Is he tyrannical with his body? That is the church. Is he selfish with his body? That is the church. No. He is kind. He's not harsh. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's Colossians 3.19. He is understanding and patient. He honors the church and adorns her. 1 Peter 3.7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you, co-heirs with you. So that destroys any idea that this doctrine that I'm talking about is saying that men is superior and women are inferior. That's not, they're co-heirs, one in Christ. Head and helper coming together for the mission. Everything about the husband's role is self-giving, not selfish. And so with that said, moving to young men, In your pursuit of getting married, if you are saying to yourself, I need to find the right woman for me, then you need to repent of your narcissism and selfishness. It's not about finding the right woman for you. It's about being the right man for the woman and vice versa. And so... How do we start becoming the right men for the women and children? The children that she will bear you. Okay, so how can we do that? First, you need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. I got five points here, five applications here. The first thing that you can do, young men, to become ready for marriage is this. You need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That is the most manliest thing that you can do. There's nothing more manly than a man repenting of their sin in dust and ashes saying, I am nothing, Christ, you are everything. It starts there. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Turn from your sin. Come to the Lord. He will abundantly pardon you. And so women, what does that mean for the man that you're pursuing? Have they done this in their life? I tell you, you will be miserable if they're not a Jesus man. Because it starts there. Before you can have a marriage that shows off the gospel, you must first trust in the gospel, right? A marriage is to show forth Christ in the church, this beautiful theological truth. And yet, if you don't know God and the gospel, you're going to fall short of that. In order to love, you need to know the source of love, which is God. I just read that. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You cannot love a wife until you first know the source of love, which is God. It starts there. A man who is not first gripped by Christ will not be able to love his bride in the way that God commands. Bottom line, you have to die to yourself first before you could die for a woman. Two, start becoming the right man for, the woman and, for women and children that God will, Lord willing, give, give you, the woman and the child, children, by first sticking to the mission. God has given you a mission, men, and that mission is not to find a woman. That is not your sole mission. Your mission, I know we talked about this on Friday, is to glorify God in all that you do. Women are not your mission. You will crush the woman if you make her your God and your mission. She is not meant to carry that weight. They are your helper in the mission. Not the mission. <laughs> so marriage is the uniting together for the singular mission of seeking first the kingdom of God. In your church, at work, in society, in your home. So what does that mean? Young men and the supplies to women, you work hard. And this goes to you, women. Your mission is not to get married. Your mission is to glorify God in all that you do. And so you work hard. You become as self-sufficient as you can, as quickly as you can. Move out, become responsible, get a home, and then fill the home with a wife. And then she will fill that home with children. It's beautiful. It's exactly what God does in creation. Get a home, then fill that home with a wife who you are to pursue, not by texting, not by DMing, but by going up to her Asking her father, saying, can I pursue your daughter? And then actually doing it face to face. Just be a man about it. Think about it. What is the most manly way, what is the most manly thing that I could do in this situation when I want to pursue a woman? Okay, it's not to text. It's not to do those things. It's just to go straight up to her, be forthright and loving and gentle and kind and tell her how you feel and see what she says. And then honor what she says. So find a wife who will beautify your home, make it look beautiful, make it smell amazing, and who will then bear children, bringing more life into the garden that she has created. That's what women do. If I lived in my house, many of you have come. It is beautiful. It looks amazing. Not because of me. If it was just me living there, it'd be drywall. You know, nothing would be done. There'd be no pictures on the wall, nothing. My wife beautifies it because that's how God created women. It's awesome. So, they're like the Holy Spirit in that. They animate, they give life. Therefore, do not go near a woman who does not share that God-given mission. I don't care how attractive she is or how cute she is and how fun she is. 
King Solomon surrounded himself with that type of women, and what happened? His heart was turned away from the Lord. Bottom line. We put so much of a premium on attraction, I think it's because of our sexual culture. Attraction is important, but that is not everything. Three. Start becoming the right man for the woman and the children by cutting off the things that keep you a boy and keep you unfit for marriage and do it as fast as you can. Video games. Number one. Number two, pornography. You need to prepare now by cutting those things off as fast as you can. When a young man comes to ask me to date Eden Joy Stead, I will receive that man with a smile. I'll be happy because he's pursuing my daughter. That's what a man should do. I will commend him for that. But I will ask him many questions. And out of those questions, I will ask him, how, do you play video games? How long? How often? Do you even have that? Of course, what is your job? All that stuff. But video games, what is your, and then what is your history with looking at pornography? How long? How frequent? All of those things. Because those two things are detrimental to manhood. Video games give men a mission that is, has no productive value, right? It doesn't produce anything. They make men idle, like David, when he should have been off at war, fighting in real battles, created an environment where he used his strength then for sexual immorality. So he, David was meant to go fight, but he was idle. He was at home. And then he was walking on the roof. And in his idleness then, he took his strength. Instead of using it for battle, he used it immorally, sexually. It led to sexual immorality. And pornography in the same way allows men and women to have mental and emotional sex that has zero productive value. It does not bring life. It brings death. That, that's, you would think that I'm, I would be crazy if I told you, hey, I'm going to start a garden out in the parking lot. And I'm planting my seeds on the concrete. You'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you planting your seeds there? It's not going to produce anything. Well, in the same way, when you give your strength to those things, it's unproductive. And it keeps you passive Man, there's no shame in confessing your sin. I don't want to shame you. I want to help you. You can, in Christ Jesus, he's given you everything to fight those sins and to be the man that God has called you to be. And I believe it. And there's hope even for those that have struggled. And so there is some nuances. Yeah, girls, you might marry someone that has struggled with that in the past, but we believe in a God that redeems, that makes new. And some of you might struggle with it as well. So it's not full on, but in general, start preparing now. Four, start becoming the right man for the woman and the children by loving the church, by loving the church. A man who is apathetic towards Christ's bride will be apathetic towards his bride. One, a man who is hypercritical of Christ's bride will be hypercritical of his own bride. A man who loves the church and is cultivating health in the church, who prays for the church and their leaders, who contributes to the church, is a man who recognizes the priority of the glory of God. And he will probably more than likely do the same in his marriage because his priorities are right. That's the thing. 
So a man that is dedicated in discipling others, evangelism, serving the church in different ways will be the man who can lead and serve his wife. He loves Christ's bride. He'll probably love his bride. So find a woman that loves the church. That's the mission, is it not? Find a man that loves the church. If the man doesn't like going to church, isn't a part of the church, when you start having kids and you want them to have a moral structure and you want them to have a spiritual life, but your husband doesn't have one, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be really sad because many women find themselves being the leader then, dragging their kids and their husband to church. Find someone that is excited to get out of bed on a Sunday morning and say, hey, we're going to church. That's the kind of man that you want to be and that's the kind of man you want to be with. Promise you that. Five. Lastly, brothers, men, young men, be surrounding yourselves with brothers who celebrate godliness. That's what you need. That's how you start preparing now. You, you're, you should have far more friends that are men than women, okay? You need brothers in your life. You need to find your groomsmen right now. That's what you're doing in high school. You're finding your future groomsmen who will stand by you, who will go to war with you, who will call you out, who will rebuke you, not only when you're being a jerk to your girlfriend, but when you're being a jerk to your wife as well. Because women, they want to respect their husbands. They don't want to call them out on that, though sometimes that they should. But you need men in your life. Iron sharpens iron to call you out, to keep you on the straight of narrow, to encourage you. And one of the main problems with the young men of this church in particular is that Whenever they see men succeeding, they want to pull them down. You need to celebrate when, man, when men grow up. When you see a brother pass you up in certain things, taking responsibility, do not be hypercritical. Do not be embittered. Do not be jealous. Clap your hands and rejoice because when men grow up, it makes you a better man, especially when it's your brothers. And so surround yourself with brothers. When your brothers succeed, it makes us better. It raises the bar for us. Don't be a crab who pulls down men, your brothers that are succeeding, crabs in a barrel, but be like Christ who's the lifter of our heads, right? He is the master encourager. He is the master exhorter. He is our older brother who, unlike the older brother in the prodigal son story, who just complains and grumbles about his younger brother, Jesus would have been the one to go after that prodigal. He would have have gone after the wayward. He goes after the wayward. He lifts them up and he longs to see them cared for. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church, the gospel must be central. You understand the gospel? You understand biblical marriage and it is life-giving and it it is God's design and it is good, it is right, it is holy. We must shun the world and their lies and cling to God's word and God's word alone. Father God, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for marriage. Thank you for your design. I pray that you would encourage these students, Lord. I pray that you would reveal any lies that maybe they're believing about marriage. And um, Lord, some of them might be called to singleness to serve you for the rest of their life. And praise God, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about that. May May these students be students that are on mission for you, first and foremost. And God, I do pray that out of this group and in our church, there would be healthy marriages, that we would see men love their wives like Christ loved the church. Oh Lord, may you raise up men in here who will be great, great lovers of your church, lovers of God, lovers of Christ, and lovers of their future spouse and of their kids and of their grandkids 
and, and, and of other people's kids as well, Lord. And may, they just, may this church just be a life-giving church, Lord, for your glory. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.